One of the biggest news items in recent months has been the testing of vaccines. And we've heard all sorts of scientific things that for most of us are quite foreign and well over our heads about effectiveness rates of vaccines. What percentage effective? Uh, we want to know that we're safe. And you don't want to take a vaccine that gives 30% protection and say, there we go, off you go, you've got a one in three chance of being okay. That doesn't sound great, does it? We, we want to know that we'll be safe. We want an effective vaccine. Now, how much more important when it comes to matters of eternal life and eternal death? We need to know we're safe. And we need to have 100% confidence that we're safe for eternity. And that's the subject of this letter of 1 John. So would you turn with me again, please, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We're returning to this series, which I hope you remember that we were doing before. Well, I think we broke off in early December from this. And we've nearly finished it. We just got to the beginning of chapter 5, if I remember rightly. And this evening is about getting us back into this series. Now, it fits nicely that we got roughly to chapter 5, verse 1, because that's one of the verses we'll consider this evening. But we're not going to be properly in chapter 5, verse 1. This evening is about getting us back into the book and giving you a reminder of some of the things this letter is about. It's reintroducing this letter to you. Now, I wonder if you remember the key verse that tells you what 1 John is all about. The key verse is chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. John writes these things so we can have that confidence. So we can say, yes, I know I have eternal life. I'm safe, eternally safe. And so that we can know and be confident, he gives us three tests. And they come up repeatedly in the book. John isn't like Paul. He doesn't have a section on this that leads logically into a section on that. And here's the next one. It's It's a book that spirals around and keeps revisiting subjects. And he keeps bringing us back to these three tests. What do you believe about Jesus? Are you trusting him? Are you obeying God's commands? And are you loving, especially your fellow Christians? Three tests that are the substance of one John. Now, today I want us to see John's understanding of salvation that is the foundation for these tests and that underlies what he's writing in his book. It's it's there behind it all, he understands how God saves people. In chapter 5, verse 13, we've just seen, he, he wants us to be confident we have eternal life. But where does eternal life come from? Well, Just as human life, mortal life, comes from being born of human mortal parents, so eternal life comes from being born of God. And this phrase, born of God, keeps coming up in the letter, in fact, six times. So John's book is really about evidence that you've been born of God, because that is how to know you have eternal life. It will help us to have confidence we have eternal life if we know, if we understand how that life starts. Being born of God. 
And then it will help us to be confident if we know, well, what does it look like if someone's been born of God? What's the evidence? What's the fruit of being born of God? So that's where we're going this evening. Being born of God, let's try to get to understand it, and then let's look at life from God, the fruit, the results of new birth. So let's start with being born of God, and let's think about it like this. What were you like before you became a Christian? What does the Bible say you were like before you became a Christian? I'll give you a few examples from various parts of the Bible. First it says, you were dead. I was dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. Let's think just a little bit about what that means to be dead spiritually. Think of a film, that you've probably seen a film where someone's been smashed up in a car crash and then they are laid out in a stretcher and the paramedics have come and you can imagine a paramedic leaning over the person saying, stay with us, stay with us, come on, keep on fighting. Until the person has died. And then they don't say it. No, of course not. Because that person can't hear them. And they can't, they're separated from that person. And that person can't stay with them and can't keep fighting and come back. And that was us. Separated from God. In a separate realm from God and we couldn't bring ourselves back. We couldn't give ourselves life and get ourselves back to him. Dead. But it also says we were blind. For this I turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Let's think just a little bit about blindness. Children here, how would you describe to a blind person the colour red? Can you ever think of how you'd describe to a person who was born blind what the colour red is like? Or yellow, or any colour you care to mention. It's a funny thing, isn't it, when you think about it, that there is no way you could do that. Because a blind person cannot have any idea of what colour is like. If I've got that wrong, someone tell me afterwards, but I'm pretty confident. You just couldn't do it if you can't see it. And that was us. We, we, We were spiritually blind and we just couldn't see what good news the gospel is. Dead, blind, and, the Bible says, stony-hearted. Here we go to Ezekiel 36, verse 26. It describes us as having a heart of stone. Have you had much response out of a stone? That's what it means. It's unresponsive. Unresponsive heart. And because of all of that, the Bible describes us as anti-God. We were anti-God. Romans 8, verse 7 The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Yes, we might have liked the idea of a God who gives us what we want, and a God who's there to hear us when we cry out to him. But we were anti-God as God the ruler. Dead, blind, stony-hearted, anti-God. That was us. How did that all change? Well, 
we can go through exactly the same verses that I've just mentioned. Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your sins, but God made us alive. Blind, I quoted 2 Corinthians 4. It says that we were blind, and then it says, but God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Stony-hearted, I got that from Ezekiel 36. What does it say? I will give you a new heart. I, God speaking, will take the stony heart from you and give you a heart of flesh, soft, responsive. And all of this is what 1 John calls being born of God. I know I haven't been in 1 John yet, but we're getting there now. It's what all of, it's what 1 John calls being born of God. As I said, six verses do so. For example, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, let's have a think about this word here translated born. There's a particular word here translated born. When the person doing this word is a woman, it means giving birth, as you'd expect. When the person doing this word is a man, it means, to use the old-fashioned word, begetting. In other words, that giving, the father's role in giving life. It's talking about the very beginning of life. And the father's role in that, in other words, it's talking about conception. Conception is what's in mind here. Which one of those do we have here? Well, I would have thought it's fairly obvious it's the latter, because it's who's doing it? It's God the Father. It says, born of God. It's God first giving spiritual life to us, that initial giving of life. How did John know about this? Where did he get this teaching from? Well, the answer's easy. Jesus. Would you come with me to John chapter 3, which may be familiar to you, but it's well worth reading the first eight verses. Let's read the first eight verses of John's Gospel, chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows Wherever it wishes, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. There's so much here that I hope you can see is in parallel to what John is saying in his letter, or I hope you will see when we get a bit more into his letter. But take, for example, verse 6. I've already said mortal life comes from being born of mortals, 
Eternal life comes from being born of God. And you can see where John got it from. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit of God gives birth to spirit. Spiritual life is initiated by the spirit of God. It's his secret work inside us. I've already quoted Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a dramatic picture of this. A vision of a valley. Children, can you think of this? It was a valley with all bones scattered across it. Human bones. Picked dry by the birds. And the flesh rotted off them. And just bones. And in this vision, a powerful wind blew through the valley. Not to scatter the bones and cause more chaos, but to bring life into them. Miraculous life. Blowing breath and life into them. And it's a picture of the Holy Spirit doing his work. Verse 8 picks up on that in John chapter 3. The wind blows wherever it pleases. It does what it wants. It's secret. It's unseen. But it has power. Interestingly, the word for spirit and wind is the same word in both Old and New Testaments. The spirit giving life to dead people. He does it. He initiates it. And all of this is about God giving life to us. But it's just the start. It's just the start. So let's have a think a little more about birth and new birth and a child growing and developing. It all starts with conception. Life is given at that moment and the characteristics are inherited at that point. But then there's still so much more developing and growing to do. And then, of course, there's all that struggle of actually being born. And then the child doesn't walk off independently. Oh, no, no. The child's still got a lot of reliance on parents for growth and protection and feeding and teaching. And... Those natural experiences have spiritual equivalents. That means being born of God is all God's work. He starts it off, not us. Like a, just like a child doesn't conceive itself, but then we have a role to play in growing and being taught and developing But not a role that's independent of our father, just like a child, still depending on its father. We still depend on God the Father. We don't go off independently on our own way. And that also means we have a role in someone else being brought to the birth. Someone else being born again. So God is the father who gives life. That's his job, not ours. That's his private work. Remember John 3 verse 8, the spirit is unseen like the wind is unseen. You see the results sometimes, but you don't see the wind. We don't know who he's done that work in, who he hasn't. Our business is to be like the midwife. Have you ever thought that evangelism is like being a midwife? What's the midwife do? Trying to make sure the birth happens. You don't know who God has begun to work in. And so, like the midwife, we urge Well, I know a midwife doesn't do this. Think of the parallel. We urge people to repent and to believe the good news. But it all starts with God giving life. So what's that life like? Let's move on now. We've had, I was trying there to explain the doctrine, the Bible's teaching of new birth, being born of God. Now let's think about life from God. 
Life from God. There are six verses in 1 John that tell us about what being born of God results in. And they can be grouped into three results that are given. Three fruits of being born of God. Let's look at them now. The first one is righteousness. I'm not saying it's first in order of time. It's the first in coming up in John. Because it's chapter 2, verse 29. Chapter 2, verse 29. Righteousness. If you know that he, God, is righteous... You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. I hope you noticed a pattern there. If you know that he, God, is righteous, then you know everyone who does what is right, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. One, I've, I've used this illustration before, but you've probably forgotten it. One lunchtime I came home and there was a visitor in the house. Someone I'd never met before and someone I didn't know was coming to visit us. But within seconds, I knew who this person was. It was Seth's mum. You know how I knew it was Seth's mum? Well, for one thing, the accent. But it wasn't just the accent, the expressions, the mannerisms, and just those little things you can't put your finger on. But there was the similarity. I'd never met her before. I didn't know she was coming. But I, I, with 100% confidence, knew that's Seth's mum. Because we inherit characteristics from our parents. And so chapter 2 verse 29 says, God is righteous. We know he's righteous. How do we know he's righteous? Oh, the best way is this. Because he's been made known by the Lord Jesus. And he lived a life that was right in every way. Perfect righteousness. And so, John says, if you've been born of God, you'll inherit his character. You can't be born of God and not inherit his character. If you're born of God, you will have righteousness. You'll inherit, not in the natural way we inherit from parents, but, remember John 3, the work of the Spirit. You've got the same sort of thing in chapter 3, verse 9. Would you have a look at chapter 3, verse 9? No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, it doesn't say the born-again person will never sin. Uh, We could show that in various ways, not least, have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. I write these things so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we've got someone to speak up for us, Jesus. Well, that verse would make no sense if he's writing to people who cannot sin. Why would he say, I'm writing this so you don't sin? And why would he say, and if you sin, if it was impossible to sin? No, it doesn't mean impossible to sin. But it means you cannot be born again and carry on carelessly in your sin. The born-again person will repent. Oh, sometimes we backslide and take far too long to repent. But if you're born again, you will be brought back to repentance. Why? How can we be confident? Well, what does verse 9 say? Because God's seed remains in him. Now, do you see again the picture that John is giving of God fathering us? It's all about God starting out life. And it even uses this physical picture of seed. A man has seed. And just as a father passes on his genetic material, his seed, 
when a baby is conceived. So God passes on to us. It's not physically, but by the Spirit. He gives us a new heart. A heart that loves righteousness and hates sin. Even though it's in this old body where we're at such a confusing mixture. By the way, you've got a similar thing in chapter 5, verse 4 and chapter 5, verse 18. But we're not going to look at them tonight. There's the first result, not first in time, but the first in John's letter of new birth, righteousness. But here's another result of new birth, love. Chapter 4, verse 7. 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, do you see the same pattern as in chapter 2, verse 29? It says, look what God is like. So if he's fathered you, you'll have that character. And what is God like? He is love. He is pulsing with love. So pulsing with love, he's given his one and only son. God is so eager to love that he first loved us before we were ever had any idea of loving him. God's love is so real that it's not just a sentimental idea that he took this action. Jesus came and died for us. And all of that I've got from 1 John. And so 1 John says, well, if God's fathered you, you're going to have to have inherited some love. You can't have him as your father and not have inherited that character that is so pulsing through him. If you're born again, it will result in righteousness and love. And thirdly, it will result in faith. Let's turn to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It results in right belief. But when John talks about belief, he's not just talking about an ascent in the head. He's talking about saving faith. Now, here we must remember that 1 John is not a letter about how to be born again. That's not his subject. If you want to find out about that, you read his gospel. John wrote this letter, we reminded ourselves at the beginning so that you can know that you are born again. And so just as chapter 2, verse 29 wasn't telling us, be righteous so you get new birth, and chapter 4, verse 7 wasn't saying, be loving so you get born again, chapter 5, verse 1 is not saying, trust Jesus so that you get new birth. No, the trusting Jesus is the result of new birth. And when we think about what we heard earlier, that makes sense. In fact, when we think about what we heard earlier, it has to be that way round. I suppose if saving faith was just agreeing, I agree that Jesus died, and I agree there's good historical evidence he rose from the dead, and I agree that the Bible fits together well. Well, a person who is spiritually dead and blind and stony-hearted and anti-God could have that sort of faith. But saving faith is more than that. 
Saving faith is seeing my need and sin and wanting to be rid of it and trusting Jesus to rid me of it. Saving faith is seeing that Jesus is the saviour worth having and saying, Jesus, I'm coming to you because I want you to be my saviour. Saving faith is seeing the life that God offers is better than anything I can get for myself or anything that the world offers. And a person who is dead, blind, stony-hearted and anti-God is not going to have that sort of faith. A person who is addicted to sin is not going to have that repentant sort of faith. Here's a little example that I hope might help you. It's one I've used before, but um, I like to reuse examples. Uh, My children like McDonald's. I'm not saying that to embarrass them, because most children like McDonald's. Nothing wrong with liking McDonald's. But if one day we're on our way to McDonald's, I say, hey, let's do something different. Let's go to John's house. Now, John's house is not referring to anyone here called John. It's a restaurant, the only restaurant in Leicestershire that has a Michelin star. I say, let's instead go to John's house. I will pay for it. I will take you. Instead of McDonald's, we can go there. Is that a good offer? That's a good offer. Have I made unreasonable conditions that they just can't manage to do? No, I've said, I'll pay for you. I'll I'll take you. Will they take up the offer? I think not. I don't think they will. Why? Anything getting in the way of it? No. It's just they prefer McDonald's. That's the way their heart is inclined. They like McDonald's. Now, I could force them into the car and say, you are going, like it or not, and I could by force take them. Or I could try to change their desires. So instead of being so loving McDonald's, oh, a Happy Meal really does make us happy, and instead liking John's House Michelin-starred restaurant meal. But it's beyond my power to change their desires. But it's not beyond God's power to change our desires. And that's how he works. Nobody is forced into being a Christian. No one is pushed unwillingly into it by God. But he changes and wins our desires. He gives us a new heart. To use the language of John, he gives us new birth, born of God. And that new birth results in faith love and obedience. Well, briefly to finish, let's get some lessons from this. Just two brief lessons that follow from what we've heard about being born of God and then that life from God that comes from it. Two brief lessons. Here's the first. Belief and obedience go together. Belief and obedience go together. You cannot be the child of a father without inheriting some characteristics from that father. I'm talking, of course, of biological father, not adopted. And so you cannot get a person who trusts the Lord Jesus but carries on carelessly in sin. You cannot get a person who trusts the Lord Jesus but is characterised by hate. Because faith Love and obedience all come from being born of God. And they have to go together. If, you, if someone seems to trust Jesus but is persistent in unrepentant sin and is unloving, then they're probably just agreeing with the Bible. It may look like faith, but it's not real, humble trust in Jesus. Because belief and obedience and love must 
go together. That's the first simple lesson. Here's the second simple lesson. It's very simple, but we so need it repeatedly. Be thankful. Isn't this cause to be thankful? I've just finished reading for the second time Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Now, I hope this illustration doesn't spoil the book for anyone who uh, hasn't read it. But to be honest, if you're going to read it, uh, you're probably the sort of person who would enjoy it, even though you know the punchline. There is this man called Stephen Blackpool, and he falls down a disused mine shaft. And there he lies, he's knocked out, and he's... Bones are broken and he's in this terrible state. He does recover consciousness, but he can't move and he can't get... There is no way he can get himself out of that mine shaft. It's amazing he's still alive. It is just impossible for him to get himself out. And that was us before God lifted us out. By the way, if you're not a Christian, if you don't safely belong to the Lord Jesus, this is not at all encouraging you to just sit there and wait. I've been to churches that have given the impression you just sit there and wait and maybe one day God will save you, maybe not, just it's all fatalistic. No way. Surely the answer is obvious. Cry out to God, rescue me, lift me up. And part of my job being the midwife is to urge you to do that. But for those of us who are Christians, that was us, like Stephen Blackpool, there, down in the pits, unable to lift ourselves up, and, if we're honest, too dead, blind, stony-hearted and proud to admit we needed God to do it. He had to change us. He had to give a new heart. He had to give new birth. And we were hopeless until and unless he'd done it. Until he sparked off the change in us. Do you get any feeling of how utterly reliant on God you are? You were born of God. He did it. There is reason to be thankful.